This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. True crime, Grateful Dad. I have a little story that might be of interest. I flew to Oregon to meet with a guy named Robert. He had emailed me a few weeks back about some information regarding Mary Joya and Greg Niffin's murders. Turns out his old roommate was Bo. This guy, Bo, was invited to move into our apartment. I'm not really sure how that all happened, but he was vetted because, you know, a fellow deadhead, you know, he's not going to take up much space. And he's a fellow tie-dyer. He makes beautiful tie-dyes. One thing led to another, and uh, he was living in that apartment. We're all getting getting along. Fast forward to this one day. We're sitting in the living room, and another fellow deadhead showed up and immediately confronted Bo. It was a confrontation, and there was raised voices. This was not something that we were used to. He said... How can you sleep at night? Why were you washing your hands? It was so out of context, I didn't understand what it all meant. I just looked at my girlfriend and was like, what the fuck? What what is going on here? How can you sleep at night? Why were you washing your hands? It cast a pall that moment. What was that about? That was awful strange. Because it was an uncomfortable situation, I didn't ask either of them, what are you talking about? You just knew not to ask. The next morning, when we woke up, we realized, where's Bo? He's gone. This guy packed up his goods silently and just vacated. He disappeared. We didn't have any any context for what that conversation, what the confrontation was about. It wasn't until sometime later, it was like rumors. Hey, you know that guy Bo? He might have been involved in these murders that happened down in the Bay Area. I'm like, what? This man was, through the rumor mill, was implicated in this. That made us think, wow, is that what that conversation was about? Did we witness somebody being confronted for a double murder? Is it possible? It seemed like he was being confronted for being a murderer. Is it possible that that this person had something to do with this terrible crime. 
Many years went by, and I'd think about it. In the midst of time, and you know, I, I don't know, it just, it was an abstract idea and something that was hard to swallow. You potentially, you know, had, had somebody that lived in your space that was a dangerous person that could do this. So yeah, it's just a big question mark. It wasn't until two weeks ago, this all came up, you know, when I saw that you were starting this podcast. It's the first time I knew the person's name, Ralph International Thomas, the man that was convicted for the murders. You know, I never met him. It's hard for me to believe that any human being would take another person's life. It's hard for me to, to understand that. I don't know, it seems like there was enough evidence there, there was enough reasonable doubt there. I, I, I'm not sure, I'm not sure. It's just all a big question mark. I saw somebody that I thought I knew a little bit that showed himself to be an unstable character being confronted by somebody else. And it sure seemed like the man that was confronting him knew something. Whatever really happened that night, it stuck with him his whole life. That moment, out of context, could mean nothing. But in knowing some of the grisly details of this murder case, it starts to sound a little more sinister. First things first, a few things had to line up for this story to be considered. One, who was Bo? According to Robert, he was a fellow deadhead in his early 30s, a tall, skinny guy with long blonde hair. His real first name was James, but everyone knew him by his nickname, Bo. Two, when did this happen? According to Robert, Bo lived with him for a short period of time around September of 1985 in Chico, California. The murders happened on August 15th of 85, just a few weeks prior. At first glance, this story does fit, both the physical description and the timeline. Vivian Cersei saw someone there in Rainbow Village that night. The question is, was it this guy? It's certainly in the realm of possibility. One of the most puzzling things about this murder was the motive. And according to attorney Alex Reisman, this was something the prosecutor had a hard time proving. Jim Anderson, who was the prosecutor, he argued that because Mary Joya's zipper was down a quarter of an inch, that there had been an attempted rape, that N had tried to rape Mary, and that Greg Niffen was killed coming to her rescue. Nothing suggested any of that in the evidence. She was carried across a quarter of a mile to the bay from where she was killed, dragged and her arms were abraded and her legs were abraded and her zipper came down a quarter of an inch. But he took that and ran with that sexual implication and put it in the jury's head. The prosecutor said it was a sexual assault. Greg came to her side to protect her and he was killed protecting her. Where do you get that? You get that in racial bias. Racial bias was in this case the entire way, the whole way. The wrong person 
of the wrong color has the wrong history. He had a bad history. He had a history of violent crimes in the early 70s, and he was put in prison for 10 or 12 years. According to Alex, Ralph Thomas did have a criminal history, and it wasn't a pretty one. He had felony convictions he served time for in the early 70s. I couldn't find the physical records, but from what I gathered, his previous charges included robbery and rape. Not a good look for someone who's a murder suspect. If this was true, then by no means was Ralph International Thomas an innocent man. But let's not get sidetracked. In some ways, you can see why the cops may have jumped to a conclusion in this case. But if they got the wrong guy, that means the actual killer has been roaming free for the past 35 years. Mary and Greg's murders were extremely violent. The kind of person capable of doing that could very well do it again. When they've got a record, when they've got a history, it's much harder to defend themselves, much harder for people to care. He gets lost to the cops who say, huh, and again, we got him. That's it, let's wrap this up. It was lost, honestly, to the prosecutor and everybody else in this case who wouldn't look at the real evidence in the case. Officers who were involved in the investigation knew International and focused on him immediately. The police funneled the evidence inappropriately toward him. Though Ralph was a convicted felon, the cops in this case were doing some pretty shady things from the very beginning. On the morning they discovered the bodies, a few residents of Rainbow Village were standing by watching the developing crime scene. When investigators pulled Mary's body out of the water, Ralph Thomas was a few feet from the shore. He leaned into a nearby police officer and said, quote, that's Mary, I know her. The police officer said, go tell Isle. Isle was one of the inspectors and he was about 45 feet away. So he went up and he said, that's Mary, I know her. That was used as evidence against N. They said, he was 45 feet away. I couldn't see who it was. That was produced as evidence at the trial of an admission. Even though Ralph was just a few feet from Mary when he told the officer he recognized her, they were able to use this statement against him. They claimed that when he told the second officer, he was over 45 feet away, and there was no way he could have recognized her. This way of sort of twisting the truth is what the prosecution relied on. It was such a weird statement, too. That's Mary. I know her. Is that something her killer would say to a police officer? What an unnecessary way to involve yourself if you did it. The police also tested all of Ralph's clothing for any signs of blood, but they found nothing. The dehumanization of African-Americans was an absolute necessity in order to do to them what white people did to them in this country. They had to treat them and internalize that they weren't human. And I think that that is a lingering aspect of institutional racism in this country. Do white people see black people as fully human? I think that what happened to N was much easier to do because there is a certain impulse in some people to see black people as less than human. He was objectified. You could objectify him. I think the evidence strongly 
supports the fact that he didn't do this and that Bo did. The truth lies in the dead community, and the lawyer never went there. They knew Bo. They knew Mary. They knew Greg. They were the sea in which they swam. I initially set out to make a podcast that would outline a few different Grateful Dead cases, more or less an overview. But I quickly found myself in familiar territory, devoting almost all of my time to this one case. I kept thinking if I just pressed a little harder, something new was bound to surface. The idea that there could still be some hidden truth about these murders in the Grateful Dead community became my new obsession. But if I actually wanted to uncover something, this had to become my only focus. And to be completely honest, the thought of submerging myself deep into a case again scared the shit out of me. I know that podcasts can be dramatic. True crime is a genre now, and people love to play detective. But if you're really gonna do this, you won't sleep the same. The sense of vulnerability is overwhelming. The fear and anxiety you get from poking around an unsolved case is unmatched. Maybe I'm addicted to it, I don't know. But my newfound mission was to figure out how two peaceful loving deadheads could wind up murdered that night in 85. I think the irony is that it wasn't the situation that was dangerous. It was someone inside the dead community. If we're right, that was what was dangerous to them. Is that endemic in a situation like the dead? I think it is. I think there's always going to be dangerous hangers-on in a situation where there's no questions asked. Some people take advantage of that, people who are dangerous. That's what happened here. There are people who do bad things. There were boogeymen in the dead's orbit, always, in person and in song. From their early days as a band, the Grateful Dead kept strange company. A friend of the devil is a friend of mine, Jerry Garcia sang. And this was true in more ways than just the folkloric origins of those lyrics he sang. Peace-loving hippies, equality-driven activists, sure, but also wolves in sheep's clothing who'd penetrated the band's communal, free-spirited social bubble to take advantage of the band and their followers' docile, unsuspecting nature. Jerry was reminded of them now on stage as he glanced down at the body of his new guitar. This was the instrument's inaugural show, and Jerry was loving it. A beautiful Doug Irwin-built axe cut from purple heart and curly maple wood. It played like the beast that it was, and so Jerry named it The Wolf christening it with a bloodthirsty cartoon wolf sticker below the guitar's bridge. The lore of the wolf ran wild in Jerry's mind. When I awoke, the dire wolf, 600 pounds of sin, was grinning at my window. All I said was, come on in. Don't murder me. I beg of you, don't murder me. Please, don't murder me. The lyrics from the Grateful Dead's stellar fifth album, Working Man's Dead, penned by Jerry's longtime lyrical collaborator, Robert Hunter, were written after the two had stayed up late one night watching a film adaptation of the Sherlock Holmes book, The Hound of the Baskervilles. Hunter seemed to latch on to something darker. The lurking evil in the shadows of the counterculture the dead inhabited couldn't have been far from his mind. Violent Hell's Angels, opportunistic East Coast confidence men like stockbroker Cadillac Ron Raccoon, 
not to mention the usual assortment of profiteering drug dealers, thieves, pimps, and certainly far worse, who made it their business to glom on to successful bands. They all floated in and out of the band's orbit. The fact that the dead attracted these bad actors wasn't in and of itself unique. This was, after all, rock and roll. The difference, though, between the Grateful Dead and most other rock bands was the band's firm refusal to ever express any sense of authority or judgment. Who were they to pass judgment on someone else's behavior? That was the other person's trip, not theirs, and thus, when bad folks came round, provided their behavior wasn't too out of control, they were pretty much left alone to hang as long as they liked, come what may. The band members were eventually insulated by their crew and management, and thus, whatever problems were caused by said bad actors, they weren't really the Grateful Dead's problem. Except that they were. This was best demonstrated by the Grateful Dead's relationship with the Hells Angels, a violent group of outlaw bikers whose highest-ranking members, like Sonny Barger, the Dead counted amongst their close personal friends. During the Summer of Love, the Dead played a memorial concert in Haight-Ashbury after a particularly beloved member of the San Francisco Angels, Chocolate George, named for his love of chocolate milk, died in a motorcycle accident. But the Hells Angels were also known for incidents like the rape of two teenage girls in Monterey in 1964, after which motorcycle gangs were banned from the city and the club became a target of the state's attorney general. Though the dead and the angels were allies in the anti-establishment lifestyles, their very different brands of anti-establishment living made for strange bedfellows. When asked during an interview why he was friends with some of the Hells Angels, Jerry once replied, because they're scary. They're all big and strong and good in all of the violent spaces. And tonight, on September 5th, 1973, Jerry could see them all in the crowd. And they could see him, too. This was a Hells Angels party, on a boat, booze cruise style, in New York Harbor aboard the SS Bay Bell. The event was dubbed a Pirate's Ball, and in the crowd, hundreds of modern-day pirates, the angels and their old ladies, there to watch longtime friend of the club Jerry Garcia melt faces with his new wolf guitar, shredding through some old-timey rock and roll standards with his collaborative Merle Saunders side project simply entitled Jerry Garcia and Friends. The group gave Jerry something to do when the dead were off the road. You know, idle hands and all that. There was, of course, powerful LSD making the rounds. Jerry had a sense of it from the stage. The roll of the tide under the Bay Bell added to the trippiness of the set. And the audience bounced and swayed to Jerry and Merle's set. Randy Newman's You Can Leave Your Hat On, Jimmy Cliff's The Harder They Come. And the tunes were more easily accessible than the improvised experimental Americano, Jerry's Grateful Dead. But they still rocked, and one audience member in particular, Hell's Angel, Freewheel and Frank, with the heavy dose of acid he'd taken, felt that he could connect the dots from Jerry's masterful solo in The Harder They Come back to the first Dead shows he'd attended in 1966, up in La Honda, at Ken Kesey's Acid Tests. The Grateful Dead were Kesey's house band. Freewheel and Frank would never forget. He saw them as equals that night, seven years earlier. They, like him, like everyone else in attendance, were part of the performance was totally freeing. The lack of boundary between quote-unquote performance and attendance. Everyone was there at the acid test to perform in one way or another, to push the limits of their subconscious through psychedelic LSD experimentation. 
Ken Kesey, noted academic, intercollegiate wrestling champion, famed author of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, sometimes a great notion, one-time drug fugitive and leader of the Merry Pranksters, a group of psychedelic seekers and first-generation beats like Neil Cassidy, who rejected the establishment and spread hippie culture up and down the West Coast in Kesey's psychedelic-painted school bus with further emblazoned across its front, would spike pitchers of Kool-Aid with the powerful lysergic acid dithylamide and just as much of it as his own body could handle, and encourage all in attendance, house band included, to partake and to lean into whatever creative form of expression they could conceive of there on the spot. At the acid tests in 66, that meant a mix of not only psych rock from the dead and wild, expressive, occasionally nude dancing, but it also meant fluorescent painting, crude manual strobe light programming, and weird as fuck spectral tape looping, all of which usually happened in conjunction with one another, creating a sensory overload of madness and free expression capable of driving even the most secure, well-grounded individuals to the edge of sanity, never mind someone as emotionally untethered as freewheeling Frank, who, at the moment, was dive-bombing the inner depths of his emotional insecurities and undergoing a spiritual reckoning of sorts in full view of all in attendance, screaming into a microphone he commandeered, fuck God, up with the devil, over and over and over again. Remarkably, the antic was not out of place at the acid test. Nothing was out of place. No matter how insane or outside the norm of so-called straight society, nothing was shocking. Not to the band on stage, certainly not to Ken Kesey, and not to Kesey's newest LSD supplier, Augustus Owsley Stanley III, or Bear, as he would come to be known to the Grateful Dead. Owsley had a suspect past. He was a chemist, an ex-Air Force electrical engineer, a UC Berkeley dropout. His old man was a senator, his grandfather a governor, and rumor had it that Kesey wasn't the only one using Owsley. Just where did Owsley get the recipe for his powerful LSD that he was cooking up? And at the end of the day, it didn't really matter. However he made his drug, Kesey couldn't get enough of it and neither could other participants at the acid tests, the Grateful Dead included. They struck up an almost immediate friendship with Owsley, who would advance from just another sketchy dude in their scene to become the band's financier, designer of their famous Steal Your Face logo, unofficial benefactor in the band's early days, and eventually the Grateful Dead's chief electrical engineer. In 1973, while Jerry was sailing New York Harbor, entertaining freewheeling Frank and other Hell's Angels with the whine and wail of his new wolf guitar, Owsley was back on the West Coast, fresh out of federal prison for narcotics charges, having been busted back in 67 with more than 1,500 doses of STP acid, and then again in 1970 in New Orleans for marijuana, in an arrest with the rest of the band that would later be immortalized in the Grateful Dead's famous song, Truckin'. Owsley was happy, of course, to be out of prison, and busy. He had repurposed his obsessive interest in the creation of powerful LSD, into creating the most powerful sound system the music industry had ever seen, for his friends, of course, in The Grateful Dead. Augustus Owsley Stanley, AKA Bear, spent countless hours, energy, and money developing the band's state-of-the-art wall of sound, a sound system powerful enough to ensure the band would be heard by every last Grateful Dead fan who attended their live shows. Shows that were becoming bigger and marked by more intense and devoted fan behavior than the previous decade. 
a rapidly growing fan base of mostly peaceful, well-intentioned fans. Fans just like Mary Joya and Greg Niffin. Fans who were trusting, welcoming, good-natured, and unsuspecting of whatever boogeyman real or imagined lurked in the darkness. Hey, Tenderfoot listeners. Before we start the show, I want to tell you about a new true crime podcast from the Tenderfoot team called The Raven. It's about a double homicide that took place after the biggest night in sports, the Super Bowl. And the man caught up in the center of the crime? Baltimore Ravens star linebacker Ray Lewis. Hosted by Tim Livingston, who brought you the award-winning Whistleblower podcast, The Raven will reinvestigate the Atlanta Super Bowl murders and unveil new evidence that paints a vivid picture of what happened that tragic night. Check out this trailer. Kickoff for Super Bowl 34. Atlanta, Georgia, 2000, a Super Bowl classic. Hours after the game, two men were stabbed in the street. Ray Lewis and two friends are charged with murder. It's time to tell the story of what happened that tragic night. When he murdered my nephew, they made Ray Lewis famous. Football, murder, and the man in the middle. From Tenderfoot TV, this is The Raven. Big cases make for big mistakes. Look what happened in O.J. Simpson. And look what happened in Ray Lewis. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts. Search The Raven in your podcast app to follow the show. Acid. Talk about a bad marketing idea, right? I mean, let's take acid and go see the Grateful Dead. Does this sound like a bad idea or what? I mean... (laughs) I'm back with Robert, the guy who emailed me. After talking about the Grateful Dead for a while, somehow we ended up on the subject of acid, what it feels like. You know, you could have trepidation. What's this going to be like? Should I really be doing this? And then you realize this is the most incredible experience I've ever had in my entire life. A feeling of cleaning a dirty window and looking through the window, a new perspective. And you get this overwhelming feeling of connection to everything, to the planet, to other people, and then, of course, to the music. I mean, with this band in particular, you're talking about pioneers in sound reinforcement technology. It would take that, that super high fidelity sound and just wrap it around you like an ultra-sensory experience. Experience. You you take this back and edit it and add soundscapes and things. (laughs) Add a little reverb and echo. Grateful Dead. (laughs) That's when it all started. He's clearly listened to podcasts before. If I could get a time machine, if I could build a time machine, I'd I'd probably go back again and do it some more. I love all kinds of music, really love it. But there's just nothing as comprehensive, as encompassing as the Grateful Dead. All the people, the friends that I've made, it was like an adventure. 
Never playing the same exact show, the same way, same song, the same way. If they made a mistake, if they blew a verse, or if it wasn't perfect, the audience kind of embraced that. And it was just so humanizing. These people up on the stage are like relatable, kind of the anti-rock stars. The band and the audience are kind of equal. Most of us, not real high on the economic scale or, or maybe chose that or, you know, maybe came from a upper middle or middle class and decided to kind of reject that and just kind of try to make it on their own. It's just a microcosm of society. You know, it's like any big family, there's a certain amount of dysfunction. There is a pretty huge amount of tolerance for people that might be considered a quote-unquote misfit. But as far as the music and the band, they only brought light and joy. Any negative aspect was just the human condition. Through and through, Robert seemed to represent what the Grateful Dead culture was truly all about. Adventure-seeking, lifelong friendships, a sense of family. But in any subset of people, there's always going to be a few bad apples in there. Dangerous people who may not have the best of intentions. In Robert's eyes, his old roommate, Bo, may have fallen into this category. He recalls the time when he went hiking with some friends, and Bo tagged along. We had all gone out for a little adventure, this beautiful park outside of Chica. So we, we took a little, you know, day trip up there. It was me and uh, all my housemates and Bo. The truth of it is, is we, you know, one of the reasons we're going up there, it's a beautiful day and we're gonna go smoke a joint in the sun in a beautiful place. That was part of the plan. It was part of every plan almost back then. But so, you know, we get up to the park and go for a walk and we're walking along and uh, we get to the spot, really nice spot. Hey, this looks good. Let's, let's hang out here. Kind of look around and realize, where's Bo? Huh, that's, that's odd. He's gotten separated from us. We're not that far. It's not like we've gone into the back country. We've just taken one of the popular trails. You know, we wait around. Where is he? Where is he? I don't know. Let's smoke that joint. Smoking the joint, talking, enjoying the day. And then realize somebody is off in the distance yelling. And it's Bo. At first, we're like, you know, waving. Yeah, we're over here, you know. Come on, come on over here, you know. Thinking... No, he's just gonna catch up with us. Well, not so much. When he catches up to us, he is red-faced and yelling and very animated and crying. This is not something I've seen an adult do in this kind of situation. It was just so overblown. He was just inconsolable. I can only surmise that he's felt like somehow we've abandoned him, purposely, somehow, let him get separated from our group. I don't even know how it was possible. It wasn't pre-planned, it wasn't any kind of devious thing we had done. A new facet of this guy's personality was exhibited, and it was shocking. 
there's something serious going on here with this, this guy. Very odd behavior. Some people are really broken and you never know how they're gonna react in a situation. Just putting that in my memory and then fast forwarding to that day of the confrontation, forward again to the realization that somehow people were implicating him in this crime, it all made me go, wow, wow, you know? Seeing Bo's behavior in the park that day set off a red flag in Robert's mind. And it didn't help that there were other people in the Grateful Dead community implicating him in this murder. The morning after that strange confrontation in his living room, Bo had disappeared without a word, packed up, never to be seen again. That was until about a decade later. Robert was at a Grateful Dead concert, making his way through the crowd, when he saw someone he recognized. All of a sudden, here he is. And I see him at this concert, kind of look right at him, and he looked at me, and then he went in the other direction. It was almost like seeing a ghost. As soon as he saw me, he headed in the opposite direction and just disappeared through the crowd. And that was a very random sighting, but I don't know, how many times has he seen me at other shows and just gone the other way without me ever knowing? I don't know. I don't know. The biggest piece of information here is that bizarre confrontation in Robert's living room between Bo and another deadhead. In the context of Mary and Greg's murders, the argument didn't look good for Bo. But who was the other guy? The deadhead who confronted him? According to Robert, it was a guy named Weston. If it was in fact the Rainbow Village murders they were talking about that night, then it's logical to assume that Weston too had knowledge of their killings. I knew Weston casually and he was just a, a character that would come and go and that I'd just associate with loosely. Weston entered the apartment and very soon after he entered the apartment, it became obvious that there was some kind of conflict between these two guys. Their attention was on each other from the minute they were aware that they're both in the room together. Weston confronted Bo and said to him, how can you sleep at night? I would hope that anybody that hears this, that beyond it being some kind of form of entertainment or intrigue, maybe somebody has the nuggets of information out there, missing pieces of a puzzle, some information that might reveal, you know, what really happened, who did the crime because there's an awful lot of suspicion. And I think there's a good foundation for it. I think if you have a public defender that is unwilling to use the resources that were available to him to track down all of us or any of us, that leaves a gaping hole in the whole fabric of this crime. By talking to the other people, They'll have pieces of the puzzle that will help you build the timeline and also some really shocking things. You'll hear, you'll hear some, some things that 
When you put it all together, a little bit overwhelming. You'll see. You'll see. The first person Robert introduced me to was a lady named Gnome. Okay, I live out of town, about a half hour out of town, and I, I generally, uh, and, and I don't drive. My husband is my chauffeur, bless his heart. If you were willing to come out to my place, that would be great. This is a photo, it's a double exposure, which makes it extra cool. It was not intentional, but that's how it turned out from my shitty camera from 1985. This is taken in New Mexico. And this was where I met Greg. I was friends with Greg, I never knew Mary. We left from the East Coast to go back to California. And this is the crew that was on the bus and you can hardly, hardly see, but there's Greg. Mm -hmm. There's Randy. Um, and then this is the bus that ended up in bus village at the marina. And this is Bo. He was a weird dude. He had something on it. Whether it was something from his past or it was this, I don't know. The murders were so brutal. It's one thing to shoot somebody, it's another thing to beat them to a pulp and then shoot them, two people. It's all become very much of a myth and a fable at this point. The first show that I went to, that was all anybody was talking about. That Greg and Mary were murdered and that Bo and Weston had something to do with it. Thanks for checking out Dead and Gone. Dead and Gone is written, hosted, and produced by Payne Lindsay and myself, Jake Brennan. Check out my other music and true crime podcast, Disgraceland, about musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly, as well as Payne's other shows, Radio Rental, Atlanta Monster, and Up and Vanished. Dead and Gone is a production of Tenderfoot TV and Double Elvis and brought to you by Cadence 13 and executive produced by Donald Albright, Payne Lindsay, Brady Sadler, and myself. This show is produced by Mike Rooney, mixed by Cooper Skinner, music by Makeup and Vanity Set, with additional music services by Ryan Spraker, edited by Sean Cahalan, production coordination by Matt Bowden, copy edited by Pat Healy, writing assistance by Taylor Bettinson, cover design by Matt Mills for mattmillsart.com. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum and Grace Royer from UTA, Ryan Nord, Jesse Nord, and Matthew Papa from The Nord Group, Chris Corcoran and the Cadence 13 team, Beck Media and Marketing, Station 16, and the teams at Tenderfoot TV and Double Elvis. Thanks for checking out Dead and Gone. Episodes drop every Thursday. Please make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or give us a shout out on social media with the hashtag Dead and Gone, and you might win a free Dead and Gone show poster designed by Nate Gonzalez. Thanks for your support.
You know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University, Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University, Maryland's forensic science programs today.